Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. How artificial intelligence could be used to predict the likelihood of breast cancer. The basic technology is very similar to the same technologies that you use in iPhone. But in this case, we ask it to recognize in early images the outcomes which happened to the woman, you know, a few years later. And humanity in space. The future, according to Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos. He revived an idea that's been kicking around at least since the 1970s and possibly a bit earlier than that, which is to build huge cylinders in space and to live on the inside surface of those. But first... Legislators in San Francisco have just voted to ban the use of facial recognition. In so doing, they have become the first major American city to outlaw the technology. The prohibition does not just apply to businesses or individuals, but remarkably to law enforcement as well, who can still use cameras watched by people. Is this a victory for privacy or a setback for a promising technology? To discuss this, I'm joined from San Francisco by our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson. Hello, Hal. Hi, Ken. Hal, what exactly has been passed? So it is a bill that makes it against the rules for the authorities to use face recognition technology in the city of San Francisco. And we're talking about police, we're talking about security services, and we're talking about the government itself. And it's really the first big Western city that I'm aware of that has ever passed a law like this. So it's, it's quite a big deal. And what are they actually afraid of? They're afraid of a few things. I do think that that side of it is slightly amorphous, but they're basically afraid that the use of face recognition technology will end up being oppressive and authoritarian and bad. One thing they're clearly afraid of is that the technology will catch the wrong people and will be a burden on the wrong people, which is a very reasonable thing to be afraid of because the face recognition systems that exist are pretty inaccurate and rubbish. I think they're also just generally afraid that this kind of technology leads to a place where San Franciscans and probably honestly Americans too don't really want to go in terms of just like more and more control and power in, in government hands. Could there have been a more moderate response, such as to regulate its use rather than ban it completely? It's obviously a big deal to have cities banning stuff, but I do think it's a slight overreaction to go for a complete ban, especially from nothing. It's not like there's a lot of face recognition technology deployed in San Francisco at the moment. There is lots of talk about um, airports uh, and airlines doing sort of check-in and stuff via face recognition. There definitely could have been a more moderate way to do this. You could have 
convened some kind of overseeing panel of experts. You could have just regulated it like anything else. It does mean that you risk missing out on benefits, perhaps even benefits that you don't know yet that you aren't aware of you know you're just saying we're never going to do this that's the end and that that does cut you off for good or for ill how do you see the influence of this legislation spreading either nationally as well as internationally it's been a pretty big story in terms of just like the news impact it, that I've seen it have already. San Francisco is the crucible of technology. That's where stuff sort of comes from in inverted commas. And so I could, I could definitely see this being adopted and pointed at by maybe European cities. I could imagine some, some German cities saying that this is what they want to do as well. Obviously, the reach is not going to extend as far as places like China, which are already going gangbusters on doing face recognition themselves. But it definitely matters that it's San Francisco. And this sort of fits into the same category of like, not for us, but we're going to flog it to the rest of the world, which is definitely a little suspect. Hal, because it's in San Francisco, do you think it might limit innovation from American technology companies? No, not really. I mean, it's going to prevent some tech companies from selling face recognition software to the police. I personally think that innovation in the Valley has bigger problems than not being allowed to sell one specific type of software to one specific customer. Valley companies could still sell to airports. They could still sell to federal authorities. I think if it has an impact in that area, it's more in a kind of like thought space way in that, you know, this is, it feels like a sort of anti-tech law to a lot of people. And so I think it's more about the climate and the, the sort of the way that the discourse is going, that a big important city in, in America has banned a sort of cutting edge technology that has a sort of a, a negative impact on people who are in tech. You know, I've seen lots of people who are sort of angry about it purely because it feels to them like it's an attack on tech. And I think that does have some impact. I'm not necessarily super sympathetic with those people, but I get their point. Hal, really interesting. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ken. Good to talk to you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Next, a less controversial use of artificial intelligence, how AI can be used to predict the likelihood of breast cancer. Like all cancers, the earlier it's detected, the better. And one way to find these cancers is through screening. But mammography only picks up existing cancers, not ones that haven't yet formed. So what if we could use screening and AI to actually predict the breast cancer before it's apparent to doctors? That is what a team from MIT's Computer Science and AI Lab have accomplished. To discuss this, I'm joined down the line by one of the researchers, Regina Barzilai. Hello, Regina. Hi, Ken. So, Regina, what is it that you found? So we found that by looking at images of breasts, in this case mammograms, you can predict future occurrence of cancer 
which are not visible for the human radiologist, which are not undetectable by human eye, but which machine can correlate with a future chance of the development of breast cancer. And how are you able to do that? So we train the machine by providing it with 60,000 images where the cancer was not visible to a human in the image itself, but we knew for these images what will be the outcome of this woman. Is she not going to get any cancer in five years? Is she going to get it in three years, in four years, and so on? And providing this information of image and the outcome, machine can learn very, very complex, subtle patterns which are not necessarily visible for human eye. The basic technology is very similar to the same technologies that you use in iPhone that, you know, recognizes your face. But in this case, we ask it to recognize in any images the outcomes which happen to the woman, you know, a few years later. And how does the success of this technique work compared to existing practice? So, surprisingly, it actually does so much better than existing techniques that are currently used in clinics and which decide how women are getting care, what screening they get, and how they are reimbursed for the services. If you're looking at top 10% that this model predicts of who is going to get breast cancer within two years, this top 10% will contain 40% of women which will be diagnosed while the traditional model, which will only identify 18%. So it's much more accurate in kind of zooming in in these high-risk patients. On the other hand, if you're looking at bottom 40% of the women, there are very few cancer discovered there. So it not only helps you to tell who is really high risk, it also tells you about a large part of the populations that maybe doesn't need to have a screening every year because, you know, their tissue looks healthy and there is really no reason to screen them so regularly or at least every year. Now, this, this sounds so interesting. What will the cost of this technique be and what needs to happen for it to be deployed in practice? So uh, the cost is actually, the, the, the other beauty of this method is actually very, you know, cheap to have it. You know, in any radiology department in the country, there is a computer system which, you know, runs the images and shows them to the radiologist. We deploy this system in Massachusetts General Hospital and you just have a computer which before human sees the image, it's run through this program and it shows to the human the image and it shows to the human the reading. So deployment is relatively straightforward. You don't need to buy some expensive equipment or it can be just readily added to the existing pipelines. And that's what we've done in our local hospital, which is right across MIT, Massachusetts General Hospital. When do you think the technique actually might be used as part of ordinary practice? So right now we implemented it in one hospital and I hope by the end of the year we will try it across a large number of hospitals, at least within the United States and some other countries that we are actively discussing with. And I think what's needed here is really to try it across a diverse population and, you know, diverse machines. And if I may add an interesting point that we discovered when we compared our model against a standard model that actually was developed in UK, it's called Tyra Cusick. It's considered to be the best 
model for risk assessment that is broadly used, we discovered this model performs below random on African-American population uh, because it was developed primarily for white women. A deep learning model doesn't suffer from this limitation, but moving forward, we really want to make sure that it sustains high performance across different populations, and that's why it's important to test it really broadly so that the physicians are convinced and the patients that this is the right technology to make assessment and substitute what is currently used. Do you plan to take this technique and apply it to other disease categories, other cancers, other forms of disease? Yes, indeed. We already started a collaboration. We are funded by Last Garden Foundation to do this kind of studies for pancreatic cancer. As we all know that today for the vast majority of patients, it's diagnosed in very late stage. And as a result, you know, the, the mortality is extremely high. So we collecting the data set where we're looking at early screening when the, before the patients even know that they have cancer, maybe they have some abdominal pain, they got CT scan and we have their scans. And we're trying to predict based on this uh, early scans, early onset of the pancreatic cancer. And we're doing now the similar project in the lung cancer space, where again, you have some accidental screening and that's how many people are diagnosed. But we're looking at the screening before the patient was diagnosed and we're trying to see, you know, what is the possible trajectory for that patient. That's really interesting. Regina Barzilai, thank you very much. Thank you. A fortnight ago, we ran a competition to win a copy of Sir David Spiegelhalter's book on statistics. We've received hundreds of clever and comical entries, and my long-suffering and anonymous producer and I are reading them now, and we will announce a winner soon. Stay tuned, and we'll have more books to win on upcoming shows. And finally, to space. Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, last week gave a presentation on his vision for the future of humanity. This is me in high school, and I want to highlight this quote. The Earth is finite, and if the world economy and population is to keep expanding, space is the only way to go. I still believe that. What happens when unlimited demand meets finite resources? The answer is incredibly simple, rationing. That's the path that we would be on. The good news is that if we move out into the solar system, for all practical purposes, we have unlimited resources. So, we get to choose. Do we want stasis and rationing, or do we want dynamism and growth? If we're out in the solar system, we can have a trillion humans in the solar system, which means we'd have a thousand Mozarts and a thousand Einsteins. This would be an incredible civilization. What could this future look like where would a trillion humans live? Elon Musk, look out. There is a new billionaire space cowboy in town. To discuss Jeff Bezos' astronomical visions, I'm joined by The Economist technology editor, Tim Cross. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, what is Jeff Bezos trying to do? 
So his ultimate goal is, I suppose, is sort of similar to Elon Musk's, which is that he wants people to get off Earth and into space, although his reasoning is slightly different. So Musk has always said he wants us to be a multi-planetary species in case anything happens to Earth. It's nice to have, you know, a sort of self-reliant colony on Mars as a backup. Bezos' justification was a bit different, and he said, well, if you look at the rate at which energy use, for instance, is rising, it's rising about 3% a year, and you project that forward into the future and you compound it up, and pretty soon, even if we switch to entirely solar power, we need to cover the entire planet in solar panels. So he says, you know, essentially, Earth is going to run out of resources. If we want more, there are loads out there in the solar system, and that's where we should go. So he unveiled plans for a moon lander as sort of the first phase and said he would sell about a billion dollars worth of Amazon stock a year to fund his rocket company, Blue Origin, to sort of get this going. And then in the more distant future, this is where he sort of diverges from Elon Musk a bit because Musk wants to uh, build a settlement on Mars. And Bezos was talking about living not on a planet, but in space itself. Okay, and how would humans live in space itself? Well, so he revived an idea that's been kicking around at least since the 1970s and possibly a bit earlier than that, which is to build sort of gigantic space stations, essentially, huge cylinders in space and to live on the inside surface of those. So there was an American physicist back in the 70s called Gerard O'Neill who sort of sat down and worked through the the very broad brush engineering strokes of this. And he came up with this idea where you would build this cylinder that's about five miles wide and about 20 miles long. And then you would fill uh, on this, the sort of inside surface of it, you would put housing. You would get two of these things, you would stick them together end to end, You'd spin them in opposite directions so they stabilize each other, and the spin would provide something you know, a bit like gravity at the surface. You'd fill them with air, and essentially you'd get an absolutely colossal version of the ISS that was so big it would have weather inside, and people could live in these things. And it's just floating in space. It's just floating in space, and it's, it's powered by the sun, so you have this array of mirrors and, and sort of big windows running down the sides of the cylinders. So you, you sort of beam the sunlight in, which provides a day-night cycle. All the electricity comes from solar power. The idea, I think, is that the ecosystems are meant to be sort of self-contained, so they need either no or very little you know, stuff bringing in from Earth. What problem does this solve? Well, so this is the question. So Bezos, like I said, framed this in terms of energy use and resource consumption and basically said, you know, if we want life to continue getting better at the rate it's been getting better, our resource consumption is going to go up and eventually it's going to cross the ability of the planet to provide. And so, you know, I guess you could call it the sort of capitalism implies spaceflight school of thought. The only problem, I guess, with that is that if you look at the population trends that the UN is projecting, you know, what seems to happen is when people get rich enough, they tend to start shrinking their families, and they often shrink them down below replacement levels. So lots of advanced countries now are worrying that their populations are falling, not rising. And the UN's own predictions is that Earth's population will peak sometime next century and then then start to decline. So it might be that this 3% energy growth figure that Bezos is using doesn't continue indefinitely into the future. Let's look at the technology itself. Is this technically feasible? It seems to be. So, like I said, um, this, the physicist who, uh, who I don't want to say invented these things, but who sort of sat down and, and rigorously thought through them, Gerald O'Neill, he published a book about it called The High Frontier in 1976. And in terms of sort of broad brush engineering, yeah, I mean, we have metals that are strong enough. We have a good enough understanding of physics to know that, you know, you can solve all the problems with rotation. Rotation is a reasonable, though not perfect, analogy for, for a sort of real proper gravity. And if you make the, the cylinders big enough, most of the sort of weird wonky effects that would let you tell it from real gravity become kind of too small to notice. The design works on paper. Of course, lots of things work on paper. The trick is actually building them in the real world and all kinds of, of sort of difficulties would no doubt rear their heads. I mean, we talked earlier about 
building a self-contained biosphere. So we don't really have any idea how to do that. Being said that, I think, you know, if you applied enough brain power and were really determined for some reason to make these things a reality, there's nothing in the laws of physics that say you couldn't build something like this. Whether there's something in the laws of economics that say it would be too ruinously expensive, that's another question. So what sort of time frame is Jeff Bezos thinking? For the moon landing, he's thinking pretty soon. So the first, you know, the very first phase of his plan is to go back to the moon. And it's American policy at the moment to go back there by 2024. How seriously we should take that, I don't know, because we've heard that several times before. We heard it from Obama. We heard it from Bush before him. But Bezos is keen. 2024 might be a bit optimistic. But, you know, we've been to the moon. We know how to do it. If we really, really wanted to, we could probably get back there, you know, within a few years. The moon-based stuff, I mean, first you need to make traveling to the moon routine, which it's not. You know, you would then need to build the moon base or the asteroid mining or whatever it is. And to build the cylinders themselves, I mean, even Bezos, I think, is talking hundreds of years when it comes to this stuff. He's not talking within his lifetime. So in some ways, he's taking a sort of attitude towards his legacy rather than something that he's going to achieve in his lifetime. Yeah, he is. And the analogies you often hear are these are like cathedrals. You know, people started building cathedrals in the Middle Ages and they knew very well they wouldn't be finished in their lifetime, but they built them anyway. And you can always fall back on the ultimate argument, which is what happens when you sort of press the space cadets. And they say, well, look, in the very long term, the choice is ultimately between spaceflight and extinction, because in hundreds of millions of years time, the sun is going to become too hot for life on Earth to carry on. So assuming we haven't nuked ourselves to dust by then and assuming there's something around that looks, you know, somewhat like modern humans, they're going to have to leave and find homes elsewhere because the home we currently live in won't be habitable forever. So it sounds like it's a good way to hedge one's bets. If you're willing to look sort of 800 million quarters ahead, then yeah. And will Prime members get there quicker? Maybe they'll get next century delivery, guaranteed. Fantastic, Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And you can read more about space colonization in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you're still on Earth and haven't traveled into outer space yet, you can take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.